0: Between the wisdom passed down by ancient healing traditions, anecdotal experience, and modern clinical trials, one thing is clear. Mushrooms are medicinal powerhouses. And I finally found a brand, a product, a company that I feel really aligns with all of my research and understanding when it comes to the medicinal properties of mushrooms, and that is Alchemy Mushrooms. They grow their mushrooms in California on organic mushroom farms. They keep the whole mushroom in their supplements, and they actually blend mycelium and fruit body in their mushroom powders and capsules to give you the best of both worlds. You can learn more at Alchemy Mushrooms. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I, alchemymushrooms.com. Use the discount code MUSHROOMHOUR for 20% off your order. Alchemy with an I, mushrooms.com. Hi there, welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we are graced by the presence of Melissa Waddingham, founder of Truffle and Mushroom Hunter. As a professional truffle hunter, Melissa respectfully and sustainably searches for truffles with her trained canine companions. She has studied forestry and woodland management and really exudes a passion for woodlands and their association with mushrooms and truffles. Her work has given her a reverence for the delicate truffle woodland ecology and its sustainability. It is a rare environment, crucial not only for the well-being of her beloved truffles, but also for trees in these areas of poor soil nutrients. In pursuing her work, Melissa has created a mushroom and truffle foraging business where she does it all from training truffle hounds, leading truffle hunting courses, performing woodland surveys in search of truffle presence or potential and collaborating with landowners to nurture environments for truffle cultivation. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mushroom Hour.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be here. It's an honor.
0: The honor is all mine and I'm glad we worked through our little technical issues, got connected because I'm excited to learn more about truffles and talk about hunting truffles, it's one of those fungi that has captured imaginations and palates around the world. Uh, but before we dig into everything you do, you know, maybe tell us how you descended into the world of the truffle. You know, what got you interested in fungi and then hunting these elusive culinary amazing fungi?
1: Uh, well, you hit it on the on the nail there with the word culinary. All started really from my belly. <laughs> I really like good <laughs> food. Uh, I had a French mum. Some of my earliest memories were being shipped off to places and, and asking her, is the food going to be any good? And I think that's sort of stayed with me from very little till till now. And it was through food and, and my quest for interesting and new things. There's not much that scares me in the way of food. I mean a couple of things, but not that much. So you know, just chasing Uh, I'm a flavor chaser and was always interested in nature so the two things sort of went hand in hand and I was actually very late in discovering fungi um, probably in my late 30s but then when I did from just sort of discovering all these wonderful edibles it got a bit deeper than that and I was interested in, in all fungi and you know everything you came across was interesting and I wanted to know a bit more about where they fitted in with the ecology and the type of woodlands that we were in and what they were associating with. So I got the bug badly. You've probably heard this before, but people say that, you know, if you're a mushroom hunter, it's more like a. it becomes a disease. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it just, it grabs you. And it's not a disease, it's perhaps not the right word, because it's a it's a wonderful thing. You know, it's a great way to be grabbed. But yeah, that's how it started, really, through my stomach and love of food.
0: And I think that is the case for so many people. The fact that you can go out into a woodland and find delicious food is just too appealing to ignore. And yes, it soon takes over every aspect of your life. But then truffles, truffles are a unique one, even amongst the world of elusive edible fungi. Truffle hold a special, elevated place, I would say, both in their difficulty to find them and in their culinary appreciation or culinary uses. So You know, as you discovered foraging for mushrooms, you came from this love, this culinary background, this love of food. When did truffles enter your world? And what was it like the first time? I mean, did you go out and hunt for truffles? Did someone introduce you somewhere else? Yeah, how did how did that start? How did you start hunting for truffles in the wild?
1: It's such a long story, really, but as a as a very, very, you know, early novice, like many of us, I'm sure we all started with dear Roger Phillips's book. And I see back in your other podcasts that you, you know, have interviewed him and he has since become a a good friend. But in the, in the early days, you know, uh, I had his book, I think my only book, maybe one other, uh, but it was everybody's Bible and it was in the back of his book that he mentioned truffle and that you could find them in the South coast And I was like, oh, well, I'm, you know, Brighton Way. I'm on the south coast and, you know, read that they're associated with chalk and this and that. And I was just completely just blown away, really. I hadn't really given Truffles a thought, but realised I was in the right area. And then sort of it became a bit of a, a request, really, just to find them very naive, very green, you know everything I'd done was totally self-taught just from a hobby perspective and the love of food like I said and so I started to do a bit of research which was very misleading back and this isn't so long ago actually and it's the world of truffles is quite bizarre and in the early days when I didn't know very much it was very easy to be taken (laughs) off on the wrong path and I did a lot of research and finally realized and pinpointed a woodland on the map, and from what I knew, thought that it would be a good place to go. Not knowing the area particularly well, I ended up in a park just outside Brighton, which was not quite what I was expecting. (laughs) Heavily dog walked, everybody from Brighton goes there, and I was a bit like, oh. And I met some friends there who one of them had, who'd introduced me to fungi, actually, and he, he sort of had to be on the first truffle hunt. And this was no dog, no knowledge, just you know, I knew they're associated with beech trees. And we walked into this woodland together and I knew they helped trees. So I sort of walked down this avenue of trees and there was just this really majestic beech tree, which looked probably about 300 years old, but still really good nick really big majestic lovely green leaves it was just it was the beginning of autumn but nothing had quite turned yet and it just looked a really good healthy tree and i just thought well it looks like it's had some help in its life let's try around here and you know i would read for ages that you know people have been looking some all their lives without any luck and you know i really thought that i didn't expect anything to happen at all anyway Within about ten minutes, I'm on my hands and knees with a with a glove, just going through the leaf litter. We've spread out a bit. They're doing the same, and I'm moving the leaf litter, and something sort of like half, you know, pops, jumps out. I've disturbed right. it. It just pops up. and I was like, "What's that?" And you know, there are so many beaches. There's so much beach mast that, you know, you're constantly going, "Oh, is it? Is it? Is it?" And it never is. You know, it's it's beach mast. <laughs> And, um, and just sort of like looked at this thing, but it was darker and bigger than beach Mast. And I was like, Oh, what is this? You know, and even soil and dog poo. And, you know, there's a million things it could be. So I pick it up and I look at it and I think, this what it looks like. It does look like truffle's got warts on it. It's black. Sort of smelt it. Didn't, to my naive nose in those days, although I've got a good nose, didn't smell of much in regard of truffle. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like overpowering or, so I couldn't really smell it It was like okay well we'll stick it in the truck and keep looking and after about 20 minutes we and I called to the boys I think I've found truffle. they were stopped lying you know no, no no it was all a big joke I was like no come on really think look and they came over and, and after about 20 minutes we'd unearthed between us about 15 and we stopped at that point because we were more than happy with what we got in the truck and we went oh my, yeah. out to celebrate and we were smelling them and they weren't really smelling of truffle and we were a bit confused and we weren't sure, but they looked the real deal. So we went to celebrate. It was warm. We'd stuck them in the car. We came back to the car and the car just, when we opened the doors, just smelt of truffle. It was like, oh, they are definitely, definitely truffles. They're definitely, definitely. I mean, at that point got really excited because before we were a bit like, couldn't work out, you know. So that was my first, you know, glorious, glorious moment of digging.
0: Glorious. Yeah. 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 I think that's the dream. We all wish that we could go out and find that, you know, when you learn about truffles, you realize, okay, I'm going to need a dog or a pig. And some of these barriers start coming up to actually finding them. Uh, So the fact that you guys were able to find them without any of that, very new to foraging, and that gives us a lot. Of hope. Was there anything, I, I guess in that case, it was just the tree. And like, if a truffle is going to be associated with any tree, why not pick the biggest, oldest looking, most majestic beech tree?
1: Yeah, but that's not really the way it works. It was really bizarre. And I think it was perhaps maybe they were associating with a tree that was younger close to it because actually 15 truffles on a tree that of that age is quite unusual. Normally when I find I do still find under trees of that age, but it's not my primary port of call because by that age, they're actually not producing many truffles. They will still produce a few, five or six or 10, maybe. Maybe I was lucky. Maybe that particular tree did produce 15. Maybe there were more. And, you, you, you know, it's so hard to guesstimate how many truffles you're going to find under a really m- mature beech tree. But from experience, In the past of having done it quite repeatedly, I tend not to find very many in comparison to a tree that is young. You know, in the commercial industry, trees produce their most, you know, within their first 50 years old. Really? Yeah.
0: So what are some of the factors then that you key into? I mean, obviously age is one of them. That's one I wouldn't expect. And from that story, it sounds like being a pristine woodland isn't necessarily super critical or maybe again that was just something lucky but what what are some of the factors you know the ecological factors different things that you're keying into to decide where to look for truffles
1: i mean you know in a natural environment which there aren't many left you know like semi-ancient woodlands and things like that where of course you know it's all the ancient woodlands that all our native plants have have Come from and 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 all the fungi and you know and thankfully, you know these small pockets that still exist still provide the essence of life, which then goes on forth in other areas that are you know plantations on ancient woodland or or even you know small pockets that are still untouched that run behind little housing estates that you know you still see dogs, mercury and bluebells and signs of ancient woodland you know but you wouldn't think that these little slivers of ancient woodland that can sometimes split two sections of a housing estate but they are there and you know you could find truffle in these little areas like that you know you don't necessarily have to be out in the woodland yeah of course age diversity is always good which you get hopefully and you know more sort of ancient woodland you're going to get that age diversity still plantations any plantations of a of a a woodland that is a host to any particular fungi are always good for perhaps you know one type of fungi that you're looking for because you go to a plantation and there can be one or two species in there that are really dominant simply because they've got a species there that and it, that's all there is and 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 that fungi likes associating with that tree so when there's that association it's quite it's quite good it's quite prevalent that you know that can be also beneficial
0: monoculture begets a monoculture of fungi
1: yeah exactly and and you know we all dislike monoculture but in some aspects <laughs>
0: Well, and I've heard that before is, you know, some of the the Sitka spruce plantations can be the best place to find porcini and things like that. So there, there can be some upsides yeah, when it no, comes yeah, to foraging. Exactly, yeah. And then what species of truffle are we talking about? Because as someone who is, I, I know I love truffle. I know roughly white and black truffle. I know in the US we have some different species. But when we're talking about uh, Southeast England, which was kind of your hunting grounds, what species of truffle are we dealing with?
1: Still is my hunting ground, I hope, <laughs> one day soon. But, you know, we've got a lot of truffles, true and false, in the UK. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot more than people think, actually. But tr- true truffles, probably about 38 species. And the, the, the most common ones that I hunt, of course, you come across all species, While you're hunting the ones that you're hunting, because the dogs will indicate on all of those 38 species. So that makes it very interesting. But from a gastronomic aspect, it's tuber estivum varuncanatum. So that's the summer truffle and the autumn truffle, which was once considered two different species, but now we know it's the same species. Um, Mm. That's the most common that is hunted. We've got tuber mesentericum, which is another good. Edible truffle when it's cooked, it's pretty vile. When it's not cooked, you that's the interesting aspect about truffles because they all smell. They've got similar connotations running through all of them, but then of course they've got their own very unique connotations as well. And some of them are like, you know, tuber misentericum. It smells like hospital floor and rotten eggs. It's when it's raw uh, and it's been lovely for a while. <laughs> But funnily enough, when you cook it, all those horrible connotations go and it retains a, a, a truffle in us. You know, some of those phenolic compounds retain which are good and the horrible ones get cooked off. And actually it's a good one to cook with because summer truffle, autumn truffle, estivum doesn't like heat, so you've always got to use it raw. So it's quite nice to have two truffles that are actually very common and be able to use them in different ways as well, because, you know, we all like to be able to do different things with one ingredient too. two.
0: It, it took some brave souls to figure that out about some of these tubers, I'm sure, to hold the nose, cook, and then discover that there's something quite edible uh, on the other end. And you, you hinted at the fact that, you know, you kind of go between two locations, where you are now in Portugal and Southeast England. Yes, we we will still assume that, the territories in Southeast England are still your truffle hunting grounds. You put your stake in the ground. Do you find, have you hunted truffles in Portugal? Do you find similarities in finding truffles in those two areas? I mean, similar forests, all similar indicators, that kind of thing.
1: Uh, Funnily enough, where I am now, I'm in acidic soil, which is the complete Uh opposite to what I'm normally in, in the UK, which is alkaline chalk here. I'm in granite very acidic so the species of truffle that i would normally hunt in england are not in my immediate area no so i would have to go out of my area to find some limestone it's not hugely from what i can tell from from the knowledge that i know but i you know i haven't really ventured into those areas enough to be able to um, establish what the truffles are going to be here in those areas where I am here, I, I plan to, but where, where I am here, um, we get teferza, which is still considered, considered a truffle. It's a, it's a desert truffle is the common name for it. And it likes really acidic soil, free draining soil, which is exactly what I've got around here. And it associates with rock rows and, and other types of small plants as opposed to trees. I think it does little shrubs as well. So that's interesting, but on the gastronomic List of good edibles that's right at the bottom because actually it's got no no truffly aroma to it at all. I don't even know if the dogs would find it. And it's, if you think of it as a mushroom, just a subterranean mushroom, it's nice. It's actually, you know, it's very pleasant. Yeah. But it's you, you, really hard pushed to think of it as a truffle.
0: We all know that smell. And yeah, if it doesn't have that truffle <laughs> aroma, that, that doesn't sound like a truffle to me, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I have heard of the desert truffle. And so that's interesting that it's based on soil type, whether you're in kind of acidic free draining soil, whether you're in alkaline soil. So I'm putting together in my head, a picture of kind of the, the habitat that you would look for. And now another key piece to truffle hunting You know, if you really want to have a lot of success, you can't always get lucky and just find 15 truffles on your first time. Uh, Is the truffle, is the truffle dog, is the nose of a mammal that can hunt down that truffle smell? So when did you first start using a truffle dog? I mean, what was it like for you learning about bringing a a truffle hound into your life?
1: Well, I set myself a promise that if I found them out in the wild, that I would, you know, go and get a dog but I didn't think that it was going to be that easy. So I jumped over the first hurdle and, but I had made that promise. And so I did, I I went and got Zebedee, my yellow lab. And, you know, of course it's essential to have a dog for lots of reasons, because it would be incredibly difficult just to go around blind like that. And, I mean, that was just, that was just, I'd, I was on some journey or something and it was just the gods were in my favour and they were just like, right. do this because it's going to, it's going to really help your life and you're going to love it. You know, it was just one of those quirky things. It was a strange time in my life, the way that I was being directed and, and just given clues. And I'm not really normally that in tune, you know, And it, but it was just a really strange time in my life what was going on then. So Yes, the dog is essential because there's no comparison to the quantity that you would find with or without a dog. So from that aspect, you know, especially, you know, I can't condone people going out with a rake and just raking up woodlands. That's just totally unacceptable. And, you know, that would be the only way that you could perhaps, you know, get quantities rather than delicately going through the leaf litter with a glove on your hand, which, you know, is probably the only other way that would be kind and not not you know too destructive which you could go and do and yes there are visual clues and if you know that you're in the right soil and you've got the right host trees and at the right time of year you know all the all most of the mammals will be looking for truffle as well because it's a delicacy for them too and truffles are underground and they don't disperse their spores like other fungi they have to be eaten by other animals to be dispersed for future reproduction, so that's why they're smelly they they want to be found they want to be found and dug up and you know dispersed a few miles down the down the woodland path <laughs> where the animals had a poo so so also you know they they do say that using a dog is sustainable because they don't dig up immature truffles. Unfortunately, mm. that's a bit of a fallacy I don't know quite why they say that just to probably make it sound good I'm not sure but you know my dogs do if they're around and you know summer truffles continually fruiting you know it can fruit for almost six months so yes you're going to have your peak you know time in the in the autumn or sort of early winter where they're all pretty much mature but as you're finding mature you will find ones that are you know getting ready to be mature perhaps in December or January, or so it, it, they're constantly, you know, coming about. So, inevitably, your dogs will occasionally indicate on the immature ones. But hopefully, that you know, I don't start till September, that you will find them in August and maybe even in July. But I purposefully don't go out to September because I don't want to be harvesting immature truffle. One, they're awful, it's like eating an unripe pear or peach or something. And it's a waste, you know. If they're not mature, the spores are not going to be mature. Even if for the wild animals don't pick them when they're immature, um, right. they leave them in the ground because you don't see any harvesting activity by the wild animals when it's too early. And then all of a sudden, when, you know, they'll tell you almost the, the wild animals when um, it's time to harvest because they've started. And, and I like to see that actually. And I get a bit twitchy when I don't see my competition in the you know in the sense of the wild animals so either because I think oh they're not here or they're I'm not in the right woodland or so visual clues yes all my my wild competition and they dig in different ways and you can you can you can tell and uh, I think most mushroom pickers have got a really keen eye and there are some things that you know I see shards of truffle on cut stumps of tree where a squirrel maybe has dug up a truffle, gone to a high point like they do to feel safe and nibble on a nut or something, but they've they've nibbled truffle. Little tiny shards just fall on the stump. Tiny, I mean, tiny. But I catch that, you know, a bit of brown and a bit of white marbling and maybe half a a wart. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. And, you know, if you're looking for a new woodland and you suddenly see these clues, straight away you know you've only got to see one clue like that and you're like okay that one's marked in my notebook this woodland it's another one even if you hunt all day and you don't find anything even if you just saw that you know because that squirrel won't have taken that truffle from very far from that point
0: and well and as as foragers we're always keying into very small clues like that anyway. So it's almost reassuring to know that even with truffles, there will be indicators, there will be signs to tell you you're on the right path. And I've interviewed uh, Dr. Matthew Smith in Florida who studies truffles in the United States pretty extensively. Uh, And that was his advice for me is if you don't have a small mammal, follow the small mammals. (laughs) Look for for holes in the ground that squirrels have started digging. He's like, sometimes you'll even get lucky and there'll still be some truffles left in a hole
1: that happens to me a lot, a lot to see half eaten truffle in a hole. And, you know, when I take my clients around, I'm always saying, look, keep your eyes peeled because look in every hole and smell the hole. And, you know, if if I didn't have a dog, every hole that I saw, I would be on my hand. God knows what dog walkers would be thinking, but, you know, every team <laughs> on my hands and knees, smelling, you know, other animals' holes to see what they were digging for. And, This is how I learned and got so intimate with the woodland and really understood what was going on, you know, and you can smell truffle often and sometimes the truffle's gone and it still smells the soil, especially if it was a fresh harvest. And, you know, and you'd be like, oh, it could still be there. And you dig and the smell would dissipate and it'd be like, oh, it's gone. But if the smell got Mm. stronger, it's like, it's still there. And the animal's been scared off by something or it's eaten half of it. Like you say, yeah, it's fascinating.
0: And you just, brought up a great point in terms of the intimate connection you would get with a woodland, you know, whether you're crawling around on hands and knees, smelling animal holes or, but just the idea of how tactile the experience is. And I know a lot of foragers feel that way about mushrooms in general, but it sounds like it might be even all the more so with truffles because it's really engaging all of your senses, visual, uh, olfactory, everything in that experience.
1: It really does. It really does. And and you know, and, and not just visual and smelling, but contact with the soil as well. Your hands are really in the soil. You know, extracting those truffles, digging round it, just being gentle, putting the soil back, covering it all up, being all night, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. And very grounding.
0: Yeah, a beautiful communion the truffle can help you develop. It sounds like when you just said your dog was a yellow lab. Now I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I know the the truffle dog everyone thinks of the Italian truffle dog is the legato Romagnolo. Yeah.
1: yeah. Legato Romagnolo. Oh, I even I can't say it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think you probably said it better than I did. So I'll give up. But um, yeah, the legato, we call them the legato. And yeah, amazing dogs, amazing dogs. I mean, you know, in some places you, you read that they were bred for truffle hunting, but they they right. were actually not bred for truffle hunting. They're hunting dogs. And I just think they're good natured dog and, and it's just been easy to, to train and just, I mean, you know, most of most of the dogs that they use are of some hunting stock, you know, um, Labradors, the work, they're working dogs. Uh, you know, I've got two working cockers as well and springer spaniels, you know, they're all, they're all, um, hunting dogs and poodles as well I'm I'm sure they were originally weren't they for hunting as well <laughs> I think they were and so they've all they've all had a purpose most of these dogs
0: and that's an interesting question you know were you a dog person before this and how much more have you learned about dogs in working with them to hunt truffles
1: oh I've always been a dog person I was never allowed pets at home when I was growing up in the middle of London which was really annoying, and I think the, one of the first things I did when i when I left was go and get myself a dog, so since the age of sort of uh, I don't know seventeen eighteen i i I've had dogs pretty consistently actually, and was one of the reasons I didn't particularly want to get Zebedee because I'd only just recently lost you know another one that I'd had from puppy all the way through growing up with the children as well, so it was quite. A poignant dog to lose, and I was very fond of that dog. And I, I just—it's just heart-wrenching when you lose them. So that's why I put up that barrier. And I, only if I find truffles am I going to get another dog. <laughs> and my kids were grown up. It was finally a moment of freedom. But actually, absolutely not, because you know I've got three now, and and I wouldn't be without them. And I love them to bits. And they're incredible. And the relationship that you have with them you know, is is quite unique when you're working with a dog. When, I, when you have to rely on them for, you know, their every wag of a tail, twitch of an eyebrow, jet of a look, which will sometimes be the only thing they give you when they're telling you there's truffle, you know, especially in the early days when they're not fully trained and I've seen the most bizarre indications and form of indications from all my dogs at various different stages, especially in the early years when, you know, they're having fun. <laughs> they want to tell you, but they haven't quite got the time. Do you remember Zeb doing a, a mid air indication, leaping through the air over a ditch? And his paws sort of just did this normal indication move as if he was digging, but it was in mid air. And it was like, that's unusual I've never seen you jump quite like that before surely not surely not and you know what this is how you learn I would investigate everything this is how I got to know what my dog was doing you know and I was like it can't possibly be a mid-air indication and you know what I went and looked and it was in grass and bramble and the most unusual place really wasn't that close to the tree but close enough obviously and sure enough, there was a big truffle, big truffle sticking in the most bizarre place. And he did, he indicated to me in the middle of the air, but he was only two and he was having such a good time and, you know.
0: That's incredible. So you have to learn the language of your dog too. It's not like one species will just have this, or, or it's not like there's one form of indication. No. Or,
1: no they're all really unique.
0: well and i think it's everyone's dream then especially hearing this that there are a lot of different species you know especially it sounds like dogs with some kind of hunting background hounds something like that could become a truffle dog i think everyone's thinking okay now i i want to train my dog to be a truffle dog so when it comes to training does it have to start from a puppy and then what are the basics of actually training a dog to find truffles because obviously we talked about keying into their very subtle Mid air indications and things, but that sounds like it's further down the track.
1: <laughs> no, definitely, and and you know those little things are just unique and 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 just help you bond with your dog and get to know your dog. You can clearly train your dog to, you know, uh, and 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 is part of the training to indicate very clearly because you you can't just be you know, running on guesswork. I mean, it's okay if it's a hobby, but if it becomes, you know, you're working in the commercial industry or, you know, you've got to be very clear or, you know, like in my case, I'm taking groups out. We want to be finding truffle. I want to show them the dog's working well. And uh, right. it's an incredible thing to watch as well. You know, it's it's phenomenal. And and so, you know, for me, I don't want to be guessing. I want my dog to be clearly telling me. So, you know, I'll try, train the dog if it's not, indicating in a way that I want it to indicate I will address that in training and you know until I get the desired behavior is uh, then it doesn't get rewarded and and, until I'm getting what I want from it you know but they work so well they they most of the time they're getting rewarded every five minutes because it's incredible how they learn very quickly you know you, you you could have a good truffle hound with the right guidance I must say because you know I learned myself I'm completely self-taught so I didn't have any mentors I didn't you know I, I just had to go and learn the hard way and that took me with Zebedee about five years and that was going out a lot and that was that's you know, quite it,
0: the investment yeah
1: yeah that yeah, was not knowing where truffle woodlands were that was not knowing how to train a dog to hunt truffle but I you know I, I know how they tick so I just thought come on it can't you know it, it can't be that difficult And I tried every day, every day, every day. And he's not the best candidate, actually. But I just think, you know, as I've seen others now since, (laughs) and my two girls. I mean, he's fab. He's amazing. Don't get me wrong. But he was really hard work. and, And he ended up being amazing. But he was quite challenging and would work on my scent and all do things that weren't particularly conducive to finding truffle and then, you know, and then me finding ways to combat that, you know, and it, it was slow and then finding the woods and, or not finding the woods and your dog not finding. And, it, you know, you're like, am I in the right woods? Am I not in the right woods? Is my dog working? Is my dog not working? I'm in the right soil. I've got the right trees, but still no truffle. is it the right time? Am I too early? <laughs> you know, uh, are the bacteria in the soil? are the right things here is it more than just the trees and the soil you know of course it is
0: you know so you were learning just about the ecology of truffles and the life of truffles in addition to learning how to trade a dog to find them it's kind of doing both at the same time and for zeb and i guess your two other girls did you train them from puppy all the way you know starting out 8 weeks old to to find truffle.
1: I did. I did. And especially with Zebedee, I was very obsessive and I even had the chance to put truffle oil on
0: his mother's nipples and um buy oh, was- my truffle oil on the mother's nipples <laughs> while they're father feeding. That's amazing.
1: I'd read that and I was just so you know wanting to do this right because I didn't want a dog but my journey was taking me somewhere so it had to be the right dog if I was going to get a dog it had to be 100% the right one and Zebedee was from Stenning which was truffle grounds and the owner said yes and I phoned loads of other breeders they all said no because it might interfere with the milk and the puppies and the other puppies that are not going to be truffle hounds and you know so uh, it was like he was the one, you know, because yeah, I was just, you know, but first off, he was the first puppy I went to go and see and everything. It was just bizarre.
0: The universe yeah. had you on a, a fast track to truffles. It clearly. really
1: was. It felt like that. It really felt like that. And, and so, you know, he grew up with that lovely heady smell, always loved them, was very good in training. It, he's a lab, so I could bribe him to do pretty much <laughs> what I wanted um, through food but he he's not a dog that pleases his owner particularly not like my girls he's show stock funnily enough not working stock and that makes a big difference and he's a proper prima donna and he's always like I will do it but I'll do it when I want and how I want whereas the girls that are proper working stock one of them given to me by the military I'm completely different you know they look at you like right you know what's the next move <laughs> I'm gonna do this now, you're gonna be happy, you're gonna be happy, you're happy. I'm happy kind of my treat, you know. Come on, come on, come on, you know, they're just they're just totally wired in a different way. But it doesn't really matter because however they're wired, there's always a root in somehow working with their temperament, their nature, their character, their you know, and you can most of the time, always, but
0: and to ask a very selfish question, I have a dog that's part Beagle, a Beagle and English Bulldog, and now she's about ten months old has the ship sailed on training her as a truffle hound or is there a hard and fast rule to what age or is it really dog to dog?
1: No, you're well within your, you know, comfortable time to start training. Definitely. In some respects, you know, there's always that argument about whether it's better to wait till a, a dog's a year old and then start training because they've got all the silly puppiness out out the sort of way and the challenges right. you've got with that. I don't actually agree with that. I start with mine very young because um, it's, for me, it's always been fun and games. I've never wanted to do anything to put the dog off or, you know, I, I want my dogs to love this for the whole of their life and really benefit from it and give them something that they love and adore, you know. So I'm always very gentle with the training I'm always about positive reinforcement in all the training, behavioral training you know and all that, so if I start them young, I find that giving them a purpose and you're you're working with something that's really smelly, <laughs> and it it somehow really grabs their attention, and I find it helps actually with the other training you know it helps with behavioural training right. because sometimes it's hard to get a puppy's attention you know, you can be all squeaky and you can be Barbara Woodhouse and you can be, you know, all this. She was an old fashioned trainer who had a very squeaky voice, you know, and and yes, you can grab their attention with food and, but I don't know, there's something about truffle if they like it. It's, it's almost like that dog's not going too far away from you (laughs) because they like the smell and they like rewarded for, you know, being rewarded for finding it and being given a task and, most dogs like a task, even from puppy stage, you know, and, and I start in the house and I make it easy and, and then reward the behavior that I'm requiring. And
0: sure. Well, that's a really interesting concept that the truffle training itself could be a bigger part of the overall training. And maybe truffles are, you know, instead of those little clickers or you use <laughs> truffles as the thing to get their attention and, you know, without giving away, I don't want to give away like secrets to your process, anything like that, but In general, how do you get a dog acclimated to find a truffle in the wild? Because, I mean, maybe not everyone will start with the truffle oil on the mom's nipples, but, you know, what are some of the rough steps you take to get them finally ready to find it in the wild?
1: Well, you know, before COVID, I was running courses where I would introduce truffle smell to the dog and reward it and then give various exercises to make the dog look for it. And the exercises would just get more and more challenging really and really to get the dog to work and really use its nose and i can generally tell after a couple of hours of seeing an intro dog you know a new dog to the scene I, we run some exercises normally it's in person but i'm doing zoom courses now because we've all had to adapt one way or another strangely it's been going really well and information is really transferable and for places or for people like yourself that are you know in the states that I can't just fly on a plane anymore and come and see you, or vice versa. And you know, from being normally just working in the UK, suddenly on Zoom, it's opened up a whole field that, like, I can work worldwide. Which you know, you think, oh goodness me, I'm only restricted to Zoom, but actually, it opens up a whole new different, whole new different thing, which is something that's good. So, I can't wait to get back in the woods, obviously. And nothing beats, of course, being you know hands on, person to person, smelling, touching. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. Um that's just the anything. But yeah.
0: And I'm sure there's a certain joy that comes for with communing with all the dogs you're training with. You get exposure to all these lovely dogs that that you get to meet and spend time with. And
1: yeah, for sure.
0: Well then I guess any other advice for anyone who wants to get a truffle dog I mean wants to start training them wants to start what what's the basic I don't know if it's basic kit basic thing to look for in a dog just when someone asks you hey I want to get a truffle dog I want to start doing this what's your kind of golden rule or or set of rules you usually give people a set of advice
1: I mean I was quite puritanical when I went with my breeds only because you know a lot depended upon it and I suppose a lot of people will probably feel in the same in the same vein but having worked with pedigrees and seen a lot of pedigrees I think if I was going to get another dog now I wouldn't go down the pedigree route for Mm. lots of reasons because I think you know the strength and diversity of you know all these pedigrees their genes and their problems that they have because of all the breeding that they've had is causing them a lot of challenging you know health issues and um I don't like seeing that in the animals and I just think that it's time to try to spread that genetic mix out Absolutely. So it's quite refreshing to see some of these, you know, like Labradoodles and various different things, uh, different breeds that are are now really breaking up that genetic, you know, mixture. And and I think hopefully it it will long-term produce some healthier dogs, I hope. There are so many, there are so many homeless dogs as well, aren't there? So many Heinz 59s or whatever they used to be called. So many mongrels that have got really good noses and really good characters and really good attitudes. And you know, I'm in Portugal that people are fishing dogs and kittens out of bins at this time of mm. year. It's really sad. And you know, and I see many of them, and I think, God, you'd make a great candidate, you know, Beagle Cross some portuguese breed you know um and i just think i'd really like to try to see what they'd be like it really fascinates me actually
0: yeah and i guess is it ever too old i mean if you find a dog in a shelter you want to rescue a dog is it is it ever too old to start something like this to start this kind of training
1: i sort of say 5 is sort of the cut off because you know they're not as mentally as as astute to you know really maybe picking it up at five and not going to be perhaps as sharp although they do say you know you can, they do you can train old dogs new tricks right. but i think you know if it's going to take a couple of years to it's for you to get a dog that's really good with help you're going to need the help for it to be you know that quick if you've got no help then it's going to take you a lot longer i can't stress that enough so if you're out there on your own with your bottle of truffle oil and you're just going to be hiding cotton wool you know around the woods in hope that you're dog's gonna you know become a great truffle hound in a year then forget it so by the time you've done that and your dog's eight depending on the breed of dog you've got you haven't got a lot of truffle hunting time left especially with your dog in good enough nick to be running around the woods for four or five hours yeah that's why we start them off young because it can take some time I mean Zebedee was finding truffles you know and got halfway in a truffle hound competition by eight months so he'd come a long way at eight months old but you know it was very slow transferring that information from what he learned using truffle oil to finding real truffles in the woods and it was a good foundation but that foundation still took time to develop him to be you know how he was working when he was perhaps say six
0: and when did this become a business for you? I mean, when did you decide I'm gonna help people train their truffle dogs? I, I can imagine once friends saw you out with Zeb, they were like, Teach my dog to do that. But but how did that start for you?
1: Sort of started because I, I take people out and I and I give them the, you know, experience of hunting truffle in the UK. So it started by me just taking groups out and we just go off and we find and use the dogs to find. And then obviously under the subject of truffle, there's lots of different things that you can do with that knowledge and the skill of your dogs. So I then realized, of course, you know, I mean, it took me five years to be able to say, okay, Zeb, I think you're good enough. I, I don't feel like a charlatan. If I take a group of 10 people out to the woods and we don't find anything, you know, or I do a woodland survey and I've charged the guy 300 quid for five hours work and we don't find anything, I can confidently look in that guy's eyes and say, mate, I'm really sorry. We've tried for five hours. Yes, it's the right soil. Yes, it's the right host, you know, hose trees. But for some reason, today, you know, I haven't found anything. And, I, you know, I'd always do that in peak season and in, in a year where there's normally good production levels. So you're going to be giving that woodland survey, you know, the best chance that you've, you're going to give it, you know. It's not often I've gone to a woodland and especially with, you know, my dogs and the way they work now and in peak season, you know, if there's truffles in that woodland, my dogs will find them. So if I go to a woodland and it's peak season, we don't find. It's very unlikely. I mean, it's always possible. And I do say to them, look, you know, maybe ask me back again just to be doubly sure because, you know, the woodland animals might have eaten them all. Or right. you might have had a local poacher that you don't know about that's come and- Dug up all your truffle. I don't know. I don't know what goes on in your woods when I'm not here. You know, (laughs) I can't see any evidence of that, but you know, who knows? So, I mean, some woodlands I can say to them actually, no. You know, I try to be as honest with people as, as much as I can with emails before I go to a woodland, just you know, because is it the right soil? Have you got the right host trees? You know, I try to get as much information prior to my visit because. You know, if they just call me up and say, come and look at my woods and I turn up and it's chestnut and it's acidic soil and it's a whole load of conifer, then, you know, it's like I can't charge them the money. It wouldn't be honest. You know, I'd have to get some prior knowledge. And, you know, with the dogs, it's the same. It's, you know, until I I was really confident that the dogs were absolutely banging and good at what they do. And that took some time, probably longer than it probably was. Necessary, but you know, I I just I'm offering something to 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 clients, and I just wanted to make sure that I couldn't be called a charlatan. People have said the most bizarre things to me, like, "Oh, you came out the night before, and you and you and you buried them all, and we found like eighty truffles." And we're like, "Do you really think I came out?" And like, the badgers could have eaten them all 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 through the night and had a really good, you know, feast. Um, I'm not going to spend five hundred quid on half a kilo of truffle just to bury them around the woods just so that you can find them. It's just, it's actually really insulting.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And you hear these stories about the truffle industry where it is, yeah, competitive and people are suspicious of each other. And I know, you know, you hear tales in Italy of people potentially poisoning other truffle dogs. And it sounds like a serious accusation.
1: I I don't think it's just Italy. I think that's happening. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you, but. Please you know, these things are starting to happen all over, actually. And not just truffle dogs. There's a lot of um, dog napping. And and it makes us, especially, Mm. you know, with dog owners that are truffle hounds, it makes life really actually quite worrying. I have to say, it's uh, not very nice.
0: Yeah, I always think of that as kind of the dark side of truffle hunting because it is such a valuable commodity. There is an incentive for people to do really horrible things like that. So I'm a little disheartened to hear that that's going on, but uh, something to know if you're going to get into this, it's interesting during this COVID era, there's already been instances where I live of dog nappings just of any dog because it's so hard to get a dog. So much less a trained truffle hound. So something really, really important to remember there. Well, and you hinted at another service you offer that I was really interested in, in reading your website. So obviously there's taking people out to find truffles, there's helping people train their dogs to become truffle hounds, but then there's this whole field of surveys and truffle cultivation. That always seems to me like this frontier. And I think in that field, I have seen charlatans who say, uh, maybe this is a little bit different, but, oh, I've inoculated these saplings with truffle and- You know, I'll charge an exorbitant amount and now you can plant them and have a field of truffles. I mean, in this field of actual truffle cultivation, you know, what does that look like when you do a survey? What are you trying to find and what is truffle cultivation in your mind?
1: Well, uh, truffle cultivation has been going on for many years now. I mean, you know, going back almost a couple of hundred years from really, really, really simplistic methods to you know getting a young whip which is a young tree you know under a year old or even at perhaps acorn stage or beech mast stage and, pl- and putting a, a truffle in a pot with a young tree or, or or the acorn or you know and growing the two together simultaneously or harvesting these nuts from known truffle orchards I mean this is what they did you know going back many 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 years ago and they realized that they could propagate them in very crude environments like that it's, but it does work well i mean you know that scientifically now it's incredible what they can do in laboratories they can inoculate young whips or uh the nuts at a very young stage generally young whips or very you know just as the the whip is probably coming out the nut and uh produce inoculated trees by the thousands now it's uh it's a commercial industry, you know, uh, in France and Italy and Spain and actually now all over the world, Tasmania, New Zealand, Australia. Many, many countries are, uh, you know, have, have been, their eyes have been opened to truffle awareness, you know, and this is something in an in- industry that's been really promoted, especially worldwide in the last 20 years, um, especially the last 10. I mean, it's really become quite worldwide now. And, and the beauty of it is that in soils where truffles grow and are most prevalent and do their best are in poor soils. So calcareous, lime-rich or limestone soils, which are generally really poor for any other type of agriculture. You're very limited as to what you can grow on these soils. Right. So, you know, other than... As you know, in France, you know, all on the limestone and on the chalk, you know, it's predominantly where the grapes grow. And France has a huge amount of this type of soil, but also, you know, perfect for truffle, which which helped France when they had the problem with all the grapes.
0: I've heard that and people, you know, I live in Northern California near Sonoma County. I've often heard people say that, you know, people have with ideas of starting truffle farms in Sonoma, again, because it's the territory where we grow grapes and many of the same elements are there.
1: Exactly. Identical, identical soils. So they work both very well. So it's nice to have a bit of truffle with your wife.
0: <laughs> yes, they go, they go hand in hand. I mean, if you have a vineyard, you might as well have a truffle farm as well. But when people ask you then to come do surveys, are they just trying to see if some of their woodland already has, you know, a quote unquote truffle farm on its hands naturally? Is that the goal?
1: Yes, exactly. Yes. Lots of, you know, English landowners down in the south are suddenly think, oh, well, you know, possibly, you know, my 20 hectares might have truffle, and then they've perhaps only been managing it for pheasant rearing or shooting or and they suddenly you know their eyes are opened up to another potential so people often ask me just to go and you know have a look to see if there's anything sometimes there is sometimes there isn't a lot of people ask me when you know the soil's just not right at all and I just suppose they've not done their research and and they're just wishful thinking and I it's always like I'm really sorry but you know they ain't gonna be there. And I'm not coming out to look because I just know they won't be there without even leaving my sofa, so <laughs>
0: survey survey from the sofa. But if things do look promising, it sounds like then you bring the dogs out, you bring the team and yeah. assess the area. Is there any protocol to doing that? If you have trained truffle hounds, a way you could identify a patch of woodland as being good or not, you have to lay out a grid, or how does that usually work?
1: Um I'm not particularly systematic i try to obviously you know cover all the woodland one way or another it might sometimes might you know i'll just see what the dogs do first really the girls in particular tend to cross quarter anyway it's their style of hunting which they do when they're it's instinctive within them for when they're trying to flush birds out and they still retain that style when they're looking for truffle which is pretty cool actually because that way you know that they've covered, you know, a certain amount of area. So I'll make a note of that area, and then, you know, if I need to sort of, like, move them along and do another section of the wood, I will, you know, I'll guide them as well. So between observing what they do and what I want to cover, we work as a team like that as well. You know, it depends, again, what type of woodland it is. Not all woodland has got easy access either, depending on what management's gone on in there. You know, sometimes I work in commercial plantations that have been planted for truffle and you know and I go to plantation owner's property to look in the orchards and then of course everything's planted in rows and it's all systematic and then you're hoping you're going to find something because you know quite often it's the, the first search maybe on a new plantation that might only be like 11 years old or 10 years old and so you've got really You know, you've got clients that are really expecting good news. You know, so no pressure. It's like, (laughs) yeah,
0: is that how long it takes generally for truffles to establish? Is like ten years, or is there a rule there? Yeah,
1: there is a general rule. It depends on the species. Summer truffles a bit a bit quicker than Melanosporum, which we don't get natively in England. But they'll start producing very small truffles, pea size, tiny, tiny. Probably after about five, six years, and then they get better and bigger and suddenly, you know, worthy of harvesting Uh, probably by about 10 years, I would say, you know.
0: So if we want to make our own truffle farms, be prepared, be prepared for the wait, the 10 year wait, and then having someone come out and assess your progress. And it's just a really interesting industry to think about. And I'm very curious to see how that will develop. Like you said, as science comes along, you know, inevitably we're going to see more and more developments. So it's it's really something interesting. I've also heard that Australia now is starting to do a lot more with potential uh, commercial truffle cultivation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I said that earlier, Tasmania, Australia, and New Zealand. This it's big out there. It's um, Ian Hall, I think, started a lot of, Dr. Ian Hall started a lot of work out there. And, and it's been very successful. The soil and the climate is obviously really suits it. And I've got a feeling they didn't. I, I, I might be wrong about this, but I, I think certainly Tasmania. I might be wrong, and I'll stand quoted if anybody wants to quote, give me a ring and tell me I'm wrong. But I don't think they had any native truffles. Lots of, you know, fungi, but I don't think I don't think truffles. So I think it's, it's always been an area of real interest for those guys as well, because I don't think natively they've got any. I might be really wrong.
0: We'll put the asterisk by that statement, but very, very intriguing if true. Well, I'm sure anyone listening wants to learn more about your work. I'm sure there are going to be people that want to have a Zoom truffle hound training. So where can people find out more about you and connect with you about your services?
1: Well, I have my website, which is truffleandmushroomhunter.com. I need to blog a little bit more on that and do a little bit more updating, but it's been not a lot been going on. This um,
0: Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah.
1: You, you can follow me on that. I'm on Facebook as well. Truffle and mushroom hunter, Instagram, all my details, contact details are, you know, on my website. Yeah. And that's it. Maybe, maybe bump into someone in the woods somewhere sometime.
0: <laughs> well, we can't direct someone to bump into you in the woods, but we'll certainly put the link <laughs> to all the websites in the show notes here. And I don't know how I missed this before, but please, because you're someone who loves truffle, I mean, you're surrounded by truffles. You live in the world of foraging truffles. What are one or two of your favorite preparation methods or ways of actually consuming truffle?
1: Mm. That's a really hard question. Always sounds so boring when you know truffles are always associated with eggs. But there's a reason for that, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, I was going to say, because it's mundane to you, that doesn't mean it's mundane for anybody else. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, the marriage between eggs and truffle is just a joy. I mean, it's just the perfect combination. And I just think it's about people to start getting adventurous about what they do with their eggs to make it slightly more appealing than just, I don't know, a boiled egg or a poached egg or... um, I've been dying to try it, and I've been talking about it, and I haven't done it yet, and I I hope someone doesn't beat me, especially after hearing this podcast. (laughs) But I'm dying to do some – you know how they they put a yolk of uh, an egg in salt, and it's a salt-cured egg yolk? Yeah, I've heard of it. I think you probably know what's coming next. So um, with all my bits of spare truffle, I I whiz it into um, salt and make truffle salt, which is phenomenal, and I want to do a cured egg yolk in truffle salt. And see how that turns
0: out. Well, and we'll have to decide if we include that in the podcast, where we need to keep that strictly <laughs> your secret. But you just you just mentioned truffle salt, and that currently is my addiction. Uh, my wife and I put truffle salt on absolutely everything,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: popcorn. You know, just anything we put truffle yeah. salt on. I think that recommendation you cannot go wrong with. And then, what are any? I mean, we've just talked about a future food venture for you the uh truffle salt cured egg yolk but are there any other future plans obviously this is a time where so much is in flux but any other future plans for you you know in the world of truffles or mushroom hunting or or anything else really
1: well i've just got to get myself back to the uk to be able to you know finish what i've started it's quite early days i've only been doing this for you know It feels like, I mean, Harold said 13, 13 years, there's still another good 13 years of it in me. So I want to get back and do what I love. It's been miserable not doing it. The the pleasure that actually that it gives to people is phenomenal, because it's just such a bonkers subject. And it's like taking kids treasure hunting. And, you know, people's faces at the end of the day, and the joy that it seems to give is just incredible. and, and, And I'm so blessed to be able to do something that's so joyous, and to give such pleasure to others. And of course, I get a kick out of that selfishly too. You know, it's like wow, you know, wow, it's a double wow. It's just incredible, of course. And uh, you know, the compliments that I get uh, are just second to none. Things just as simple as I'm never going to walk in the woods again and and look at it in the same way. You know, and and that's like wow. You know, I'm never going to forget this day ever in my entire life. I'm like really, <laughs> you know, it's really humbling and and unincred- I'm incredibly lucky because. Not all of us, and and nor did I up, up until I did this. You know, get such pleasure from what I did before. I was a, I was a painter and decorator before, and believe you me, twenty years of that was not so rewarding. So I'm making up for it now, and, it, and it's and it's hugely inspiring, and and what nature teaches you, and what it does for you, and how it teaches you in a different way that a classroom can't, and the mental health that it gives and supports, and I mean, I could I could keep talking to you for ages. Fungi are amazing. They will save the planet. He's, oh, he's right, old oh, Paul Stamets. They offer so much. We learn so much from them. There's so much to learn. The more we learn, the less we know. It's just huge, really.
0: That's a running theme. The more we learn, the more we realize we don't know about these beautiful organisms. And there is almost nothing I can think of that would be better than being able to give someone joy and a firmer appreciation and relationship with nature. So I'm excited to have you get back and hopefully train our dog, uh, <laughs> start training people again, taking people out in the woods. Very exciting. Well, I'll wrap things up then with a couple of questions I like to ask all of my guests. And the first one if I were feeling devious, I would say, don't say a truffle or a tuber species, but you can, Uh, a mushroom or a fungi that you love and why, and that could be one you love looking at, love eating, whatever reason, and it doesn't have to be a favorite.
1: I found a new species for me this year in Portugal, and it's one that is often spoken about, and it's in the family of Amanita, which we all know, of course, is either deadly poisonous or Generally, quite a good edible.
0: <laughs> quite delicious, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I found Amanita cesaria for the first time this year in its fine adult splendor. So it was beautiful, big cat. But I mean big, you know, half a, half a foot almost. Robust, firm, yellow gills, yellow, everything else, and the combination of the colors coming out of the vulva. And it was just stunning it was so beautiful to look at you know i got lots of photographs of it it was it was incredible and you know amanitas amanitas you know you, for half of your mushroom early beginner days you're told not to even look at them right it took me 10 years to eat my first blusher which i love but, uh, and then progressing to some of these other Amanitas, which are just, you know, Ponderosa, um, which we get here too. Uh, but this, that mushroom really, really, I don't know, it just struck a chord with me just because of its beauty and was absolutely delicious to eat.
0: I have some friends in the foraging community who insist that that is the best edible mushroom, more so than Porcini or chanterelle, And it's still one that I haven't tried. So a fantastic, a fantastic mushroom dimension. And then the next question is a much broader question, and we've kind of said bits and pieces about it along the whole interview. But what has this intimate, really tactile relationship you've developed with fungi, what has that brought to your life? You know, maybe something they've taught you, some new perspective, but what has that relationship you've developed with these more than human organisms brought to your life?
1: Uh, it's huge. I mean, in every in every aspect. Sanity. <laughs> Seriously, uh, I think most mushroom hunters will tell you how mushrooms call out to them. So this connection, I mean, really, mushrooms talk to me. It's incredible. The joy that they give me, the culinary wonders they give me, the relationship that they've allowed me to have with my dogs and the whole woodland and you know almost every environment because every environment has fungi somewhere just a deeper understanding of nature and how things are so interconnected and the world web and um, to share that knowledge you know when I first started this it was really about raising truffle awareness especially in UK because there had been a history of truffles of course it's a native species many of them are most of them are that we have there and and you know just sharing that knowledge. Not many people knew that we had that. It was really forgotten about. So that was really quite important to me, definitely in the early days. Now people are a bit more, you know, they're getting it and they're seeing it more and more often. And people like myself are out there more often. And the words got out. And and I, and I do feel actually I've managed to really help raise that truffle awareness, which has been which has been amazing. And it's it really helped me learn. I'm I was dyslexic at school and. I came out with not one education, you know, one exam, very hands-on, you know, intelligence of a different sort, but never thought I was academic. And it was only only until in my 40s that I did a degree, thanks to nature, really, fungi, woodlands, trees, forestry. And that made me appreciate that there are other ways to learn. It doesn't have to be classical in a classroom.
0: That may be one of the most powerful things I see people get out of developing a relationship with mushrooms, and then usually builds into this greater appreciation of mycology. And suddenly people are reading science books and learning about trees and ecology. And I think that is one of the most beautiful outcomes. And it sounds like it's uh, all encompassing for you, really. And I just realized that for other people, it may seem contradictory to talk about how fungi can give you sanity and then immediately talk about talking to mushrooms. But for a mushroom (laughs) lover, (laughs) <laughs> it really makes a lot of sense. Uh, so the, yeah, that was a, a beautiful answer. And then the final question, again, something big and grand, uh, but this idea of what do you think or what is the highest aspiration you see for the positive changes we can see in human society as we discover more and more about fungi and mushrooms and how we can work with them? I mean, what are some of the beneficial kind of big changes you think will happen over the coming who knows? Decades, that kind of thing. As you know, this this interest in mycology continues to grow and grow.
1: Well, it's such a huge subject, and I think we're only really touching on on the really the, just the edges. Um, and there's so much to learn, as I think everybody that you speak to about fungi will tell you. So I I I, I can't wait. It's how exciting is it to know that there's going to be so much more, and we you know already know about what they just do for our natural environment. And and then when taken out of that natural context, what they can then do to, you know, help, uh, for example, like in the Amazon, in old uh, oil mining, where they're cleaning up the environment and the potential to clean up plastic. And it's just, it's just I think, education to get people in the right places and the high places. The hardest to convince, obviously, that actually, you know, we could really benefit from using all these wonderful capabilities that fungi have to help our environment, our natural environment, you know, cleaning water systems, loads of different toxins and pollutants that we have everywhere around the world. I think fungi can really help with that. Medicinally, you know, I don't know why we don't do that more. There's a lot, so many health benefits that that are found within fungi and still more to learn. I'm sure, uh, truffles too. Um, I've written a big piece on the medicinal properties of truffle. So that's another world again. And all the things that we're about to discover, which I I'm not sure. We shall have to wait and see. And and that's what the exciting thing is. Mushrooms always keep you on your toes. There's always something new to find. My my pinnacle of my career was finding a truffle that in Pegler's book was considered extinct. And you I found, found an found,
0: extinct truffle.
1: I found what they thought was considered extinct. Yeah, and and Zebedee found it. It was the size of a freckle. How I saw it, I don't know. Again, it might have called me. <laughs> I don't know. Definitely. And a a, a woman simultaneously the same year as somewhere abroad, Denmark or somewhere also found one, and was doing a study on them. And both are well, mine is my specimen's in Kew in England, and hers is somewhere else, safe somewhere else. and, and now. Well, the book probably has to be rewritten because it's not considered extinct anymore. So that was joyous.
0: Yeah, I bet you didn't think that you would necessarily be involved, you know, 20 years ago with Kew Gardens and groundbreaking science. So something beautiful they've given you. And I think you also elucidated really well that maybe the big change that we're going to receive is just that excitement, that groundswell of excitement and hope around something. You know, the world can often seem dreary and people can feel powerless so to find a whole new organism that can create yeah. positivity and excitement and hope maybe maybe that's really the big positive change that that we need. Well, Melissa, um thank you so much for coming on the Mushroom Hour, providing us really thought-provoking answers, really taking us on a journey to go out truffle hunting. It's a fascinating subject and you've been very generous with your time. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: No, it's been my absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much.